I invite you to grab your Bibles and take them with me this morning and turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. We're in Hebrews, which is no surprise. Uh, last time we were here, we looked at the first 10 verses of chapter 7. This morning, we're going to look at the next nine, Lord willing. And this passage in Hebrews 7 is listing out the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're understanding his priestly ministry in greater ways. Uh, we're understanding that uh, the ministry of Christ is central to everything about what it means to be a Christian. In fact, you could never approach God if you didn't have a priest. And you don't need just any old priest, but you need the priest who's also a son. You need Jesus Christ. Uh, God's only priest who can actually bring you and make you acceptable to God. Hebrews has been a, a pretty straightforward book in terms of the argumentation. It's been easy enough for us to understand uh, the theology as we've worked through it. Uh, but if there's a part of Hebrews that's a bit challenging, it's actually experiencing the context of Hebrews. Right? It's written to people who've professed faith in Christ that are tempted to go back to the sacrificial system. It's a different era. Uh, it's different temptations. In fact, if you wanted to go back to the sacrificial system right now, you couldn't. Uh, that, that broke up. That party ended in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And so it's not even a temptation because you can't go do it. Uh, there's really no draw that you would have back toward the sacerdotal system of the Old Testament. It's not like you would think every year as the calendar would come up. Oh man, Yom Kippur is on the calendar next month. I'm just really having to, to guard my heart and guard my mind and have a battle plan so that I don't fall into temptation and, and go to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice. It's not really the battle that we struggle with. It's not the common way that we're equipping ourselves against temptation. You probably don't have a temptation to become Jewish. And so there's a sense in which as we sit in overhearing Hebrews, it kind of feels like showing up at the wrong support group where you don't really need help. I was looking at support groups this week in preparation for this sermon, of course, and uh, found that there's a support group for uh, people that have uh, a temptation to overfeed their pets. And, um, and I thought, you know, we have, we have a hamster he gets one scoop a day. I've, we've never been tempted to overfeed our hamster. So I would show up in that support group, and it would be very awkward for multiple reasons. But one being, I can't actually relate to the struggles that you're going through. And so I think when we come to Hebrews and we hear this temptation to go back to the sacrificial system, to go back to bloody animals and a priest and all the rituals of a bygone era that is so far removed from us culturally, it kind of feels like, okay, I, I don't get it. It's not a temptation for me. That's not a draw I'm struggling with. So what's the timeless thread? Well, these people are tempted. After professing the Lord Jesus Christ, professing faith in Christ, to diminish his ministry and his work on their behalf. They're tempted to begin to get other things attached to other things in their Christian experience and lose sight of the centrality and priority 
and exclusivity of the ministry of Jesus Christ in their behalf. And my friends, that is where we can start to connect the dots. That's where we can start to see the temptation that exists in all of our hearts. See, the temptation is to, to, in the experience of Christianity, begin to subtly drift away from a Christ-centered Christianity into a Christ-less Christianity. A form of religious expression, a form of going through the motions, a form of, of being a part of the church, being a part of God's people, doing all the rituals that you're accustomed to doing, and in the midst of that, losing sight of the priestly work of Jesus on your behalf. My friends, this happens all the time. It's interesting, I was listening to someone recount a study in American pulpits over the last 300 years. is beginning to identify what are some of the common themes in preaching that have extended throughout time in the pulpits in America. In colonial times, one of the priorities in the pulpit was to preach week in and week out on the relationship of the church and the colonies the relationship of, of the church to the church in England. And, and that became the central focus. The American experiment and what was happening in society around the church. A number of years later in the Revolutionary War, guess what topic was in the pulpits? Those who were promoting that God would want us to be revolutionaries and those who were promoting that God would want us to be loyalists. Get a little bit further in history, and what do you find in the Civil War era? Pulpits are preaching about what? Well, God is on the side of the Union, and others, God is on the side of the Confederacy. Later, when Darwinism came on the scene, the pulpits were filled with messages about God versus science, and whether evolution is compatible with Christianity or it must be rejected. Then, by the turn of the century, from the, the late 1800s into the 1900s, it began to be preaching about the social gospel. So uh, we had a relative peacetime and prosperity. And so preaching began to be about how we would move to this uh, utopian society where the poor were fed and clothed and we lived in a just society. Disparity would be taken care of. Next thing you know, you have a world war and what are the pulpits filled with? The fact that God is on our side against fascism. We're on the right side of the battle here and the Lord is with us. Move into the civil rights era, pulpits began to adopt positions on civil rights and the importance of God's view of that. Begin to think about what is it that our generation is going to be known for in preaching. All kinds of things that have nothing to do with Christ or very little to do with him. Social justice, political activism, therapy from the pulpit, moral pep talks culture wars. What you realize is that, that in the history of God's people, just taking a, a brief snapshot here in America, going all the way back to Hebrews, there is a tendency among God's people to lose sight of the central reason why we're here and what this life is all about. There's a tendency to begin to get focused on other things. What would the apostle Paul say? We preach Christ and him crucified. That's the central core of our message. What's the writer of Hebrews saying? We preach Christ, the priest son of God, sacrificed for you. 
And so my friends, although Christianity speaks to a host of issues, it's not primarily about social change, political change, cultural change, economic change. Jesus did not come to fix a society. That's not the message of the gospel. It's not the good news that we need. Jesus didn't come to fix government. His agenda and his goal on earth is not to establish a more perfect union or to establish justice or to ensure domestic tranquility through the government. He didn't come to promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. He didn't come to to fill your your felt needs and and fill the God-shaped hole that you have in your heart. He didn't come merely to give you emotional peace or a sense of wholeness and well-being. He didn't come to make your financial troubles go away. He didn't come to make your work troubles go away. He didn't come to make your family troubles go away. He didn't come to take away your disease and your, your physical ailments. He didn't come to remove physical death. He didn't come to eradicate poverty or homelessness or mental illness. Jesus didn't come to beautify cities or restore temporary human flourishing. Jesus came to save sinners from the wrath of God. That's the message of the gospel. It has very little to do with temporal change right now. It is primarily about the relationship with the holy God who made you and you now being reconciled to him. My friends, Jesus came and he came to do this. He came to proclaim liberty to captives. Captives are prisoners. There are people who are locked away who can't get out. They're trapped. They need someone stronger to come and open the prison door. He came to preach freedom to slaves, those who are chained in bondage under the authority of another. He came to make the dead alive, to cause the blind to see, to give hearing to the deaf and to make the lost found. And so central to the message of the gospel and what the author of Hebrews is about today is Jesus came to take those who are far off and to bring them near. Jesus came to to bring those who are far off, cut off and separated from God, and to bring them near to himself. My friends, this is central to the agenda and the mission of Jesus Christ, to bring sinners to himself. It's central to his work in the world today. It's foundational, and you cannot have Christianity without this. My friends, this is good news because you and I are guilty by nature. You're not a good person, you're a bad person. Right? We were out, we were out post-quarantine, and uh, we were in public, and Santa's already out. So we encountered a Santa Claus uh, while we were out and about in town. It's a little early, pre-Thanksgiving, uh, but there he was. And uh, I love the expression on one of, my, one of my kids' faces when he looked him right in the eye and said, were you good this year? And it was like, yeah. <laughs> Theologically, I know I'm bad. Theologically, I know I'm guilty. And I know what I'm supposed to say, but I've been taught about my human nature. You're not a good person. And sin plagues who you are, and so you need the good news of what Jesus has done. And so the theme of today's passage is that Jesus comes to you as a sinner. And he gives you unhindered and permanent access to God, something that a Levite priest could never provide. Do you want to understand The whole nine verses this morning, here it is. Jesus gives you unhindered and permanent access to God. 
that a Levite priest could never provide. Our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 7, begins in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, and hang with me, this gets a little technical. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Passage this morning before you uh, really breaks down into four points, and these are the the characteristics of the new priesthood of Jesus. The new priesthood of Jesus. The first characteristic of this priesthood is in verse 12, and it is that uh, this is a necessary change. This is a necessary change. Now there begins, and he says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, Essentially, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Uh, so he's beginning to, to make a connection now back to uh, two weeks ago when we were looking at verses 1 through 10. We saw Melchizedek is greater, he's superior even to Abraham. Right? We kind of shook our theological categories there a bit. That if you were asked on a pop quiz who is the greatest figure in Genesis, you probably wouldn't first think of Melchizedek. Because he's barely mentioned. He only gets two verses. Yet Hebrews is saying Melchizedek was actually above Father Abraham. And in case you want to argue, he says it's beyond dispute that he's greater. uh, Because Abraham actually paid tithes to Melchizedek. And because Melchizedek offered a blessing to Abraham. So if Jesus is, or Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And Levi came from Abraham's line then the logical conclusion is Jesus is greater than Levi, right? And so that was kind of the the syllogism that we looked at last time. And so today the author is turning the argument and he's beginning to say that the Levitical priesthood was always designed to terminate in Christ. It was temporary by nature. It was a, a temporary provision In fact, he's saying that that the Levitical priesthood had need for a new priesthood to arise because perfection was never never attainable through it. Now, how's he saying that there was a need for it to arise? How did he know? Well, we just read Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was penned while the Levitical priesthood was still functioning. Psalm 10 said that there was going to be a priest who came according to the order of Melchizedek. 
So Psalm 110, David is saying, a new priest is going to come from a new family line. And that means that the current priesthood that's functioning right now is going to be obsolete. Kind of a a way of thinking about this, maybe the fact that it was still functioning, but provisionally. um, Sometimes you might have an app that you've purchased that you're using, and then you get that dreaded email that says, hey, we decided that we're not going to keep supporting this app, and so we're sunsetting it. And what that means is you have a few months to find a replacement. You can keep using it, but we've already set kind of a termination deadline on that. So the end is coming. The idea here is that when David prophesies in Psalm 110 that there's going to be a new priest that comes according to the order of Melchizedek, he's saying, hey, the the Levitical priesthood is still functioning. We're not blowing that up just yet, but it's sunsetting. There's an expiration date. It's not going to be supported in a number of years. It's actually going to get replaced. So, why was it that this system had to be replaced? Well, obviously, because it could never perfect Perfection was not attainable. Perfection of who or perfection of what? It was perfection of the worshipers. See, it could never, could never really cleanse the conscience. I mean, just think about it this way. A bloody animal is supposedly taking away your guilt. Now, we understand that, that by faith, that was efficacious. In other words, you're trusting in God. God says that's the plan. And so it's, it's making provision for your sin. But can you imagine what would happen if you were sentenced to a lifetime in prison and you came back to the judge and you said, you know what? I was actually thinking that my, my, my pet goat could just serve the prison sentence for me. Or maybe my dog or my turtle doves or whatever it was that you would offer up as a sacrifice? It'd be absurd. That's an unreasoning beast. It doesn't even know what's going on. Wouldn't even be conscious of what was happening or what was taking place. And so the idea is that that year after year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, certainly those people are trusting in the provision of God and therefore getting salvation, but it's not really removing the stain of their guilt. There's no permanent ultimate atonement that's being made. It's not ultimately cleansing the conscience. It's not ultimately changing the heart. It's an external administration. And so it was always provisional. It was always transitory. Now, sometimes when we think about the old covenant, then we think um, it must have been a a bad covenant. Well, that's not quite the biblical understanding. It, It was efficacious. It was just temporary. So maybe a way to illustrate this, um, right, coming from South Florida, see a lot of hurricanes, and uh, inevitably you drive by after the hurricane, and you would just see on the sides of the road houses covered in blue tarps. Why are there blue tarps? Well, the roof blew off, okay? Now, is a blue tarp a, a good roofing material that you want to purchase for your house? No. Slate would be a good material. That lasts up to 200 years, right? Aluminum is a good material. That lasts 60 to 80. But a blue tarp? Probably not even going to get a year out of a blue tarp. And that being said, if you have no roof and your option is no roof or a blue tarp, what are you going to choose? You're going to put the tarp on the roof, right? Even those of you who don't think that blue is a good color scheme for your house would be willing to do that if the option was no roof 
or an ugly blue tarp. See, the tarp does its work. It's, it's providing covering over the sheltering, but everyone knows it's temporary. Everyone knows it's just a placeholder, that there's actually a, a legitimate roof that needs to be put later. That tarp needs to be replaced. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, look, if worshipers had been perfected, if that was attainable under the Levitical priesthood, then there wouldn't be a need for another priesthood, but it's obvious from the beginning that it was temporary. In other words, there needed to be another priest to arise after Melchizedek rather than one named after Aaron. This is a topic that we're going to see over and over in Hebrews in chapter 8. The author is going to say that if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. There had been no issues. If it had been permanent from the beginning, there wouldn't need to be a replacement. And yet the issue here is that there was a replacement and it was much better. So what are the Hebrews struggling with right now? What they're struggling with is that they liked the sacerdotal system. They liked what they had. They saw Christ was better and yet now there's kind of a longing in their heart to return. Be like someone who had a a green card, which is the documentation you need to live in the United States as a permanent resident. Yet, what does a green card not allow you to do? You can't vote, right? You're not, you're not actually a citizen yet of the United States. And so it'd be like someone who's gone through all the process to gain citizenship, they get citizenship, and then they say, you know, I really miss, I miss the look and the feel of the green card. I'd actually like to rather go back to that status. So the author of Hebrews is saying, look, now that you have a new priest here that's come from a new order, a new line, he provides a better sacrifice, a better means of access, a better administration of the covenant, don't you dare think about going back. The priesthood came connected to the law of God. And so perhaps in your Bible, in parentheses there in verse 11, it says, under the priesthood, the people received the law. What the author's doing there is is saying that the necessity of a priest was this. The law comes, it tells you God's holy, perfect standard. And when that happens, it shows you your sin. And when you have sin, you need a priest. You need someone who can bring you to God. And so the priesthood uh, came and the law was established on the basis of the priesthood. You need to think about how much in the Old Testament you would have thought often of how you would need a priest. Remember when the law came? Just read over it so quickly in Exodus 19. There was thunder and lightning and smoke and trumpets. If you have spent all your life in Oregon, you probably haven't been in a legitimate thunderstorm. You have to go to the Midwest for those. I remember as a little kid being in Iowa and being terrified out of my mind being in a legitimate thunderstorm. And the whole house shakes. Everything lights up for seconds at a time. It's like instantaneous daylight. And then it all goes black and the roar is deafening and the house shakes. See, when God gave the law, there was legitimate thunder and lightning and clouds and smoke pouring out at the mountain. And what did Israel say right before that? Oh yeah, go, go ahead, have the Lord speak to us. And whatever you say, we'll do it. And then the Lord shows up at the mountain and what do they say? We're filled with terror. We got to get away from this place. See, when the the law came, you had to have a priest because when that holy perfect law comes, you suddenly see your need 
for a sacrifice, your need for someone to bring you to God. And so the Aaronic priesthood, the, the priesthood of Levi, always pointed to the need of a greater priesthood. It was a witness for a, a better priesthood that needed to come, a better system. And so that brings us to our second characteristic of this new priesthood in Jesus in verse 12, which is that this new priesthood required replacing the existing law. Required replacing the existing law. Verse 12, for when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. So there's an inseparable link here between the priesthood and the law, as we said. And so the idea is that that you can't suddenly break the rules for how a priest is put into place without getting rid of the whole system. The law and the priesthood are tied together. They're inseparable. And so to get a new priest means you have to get a new administration. It means the old law has to be done away with. The old way of relating to God has to be abrogated. So the Mosaic law then was set aside Change here means it's new. It gets replaced. What gets taken away, and now there's a whole new arrangement of how you would relate to God. That's why when Jesus came, it says that he came and he fulfilled the law. That means that every one of the stipulations of God's relationship to Israel given under Moses for that generation at Sinai was fulfilled in Christ. And now we no longer relate to God through the Mosaic law. We relate to him through Jesus Christ in law written on the heart. This was an, not simply a, a rehab, but an utter replacement. If you're looking into buying a house, rehabbing was you know, kind of a cool thing to do a number of years ago before everyone was doing it. And uh, then HGTV, now it's, you know, I, well, now I guess even more people are doing it with HGTV. But the idea of, of buying an old house and fixing it up. Right? I remember having a, a buddy who was into real estate investing a number of years ago and uh, we'd drive around together looking at properties. And there were some properties that you would look at and you would say, I'm not going to be able to rehab that one. That one would have to just be blown up and we'd have to start over. Right? So that one would be the, the value of the land. It's too far gone. It's not worth the cost of restoring or there's something too significantly wrong with it to bring it back. See, it wasn't merely a matter of saying the law had a couple weaknesses and just needed to be dressed up. It needed a new coat of paint. It needed some new rafters. It was the idea that the whole house needs to be demolished. And then on the other side of the property, we're going to start with a new foundation. We're going to build a different house. So that priesthood meant a whole new way of relating to God. Next, this new priesthood is founded on Jesus himself. Verses 13 through 17. This priesthood is founded on Jesus himself. Verse 13 says, The one of whom, that's Jesus, the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. So what, what the author is doing now is he's, just, he's, he's, he's giving argument after argument after argument to support this original point that the priesthood needed to be replaced by Jesus and that when it was, you get a better priesthood. He's saying, if you know your Old Testament, what you know is, there was never a priest serving in that role from the line of Judah. It never happened. No one outside the Levites had a sustained priestly ministry. One time, King David was told to offer sacrifice. He was from the tribe of Judah, but he didn't, he didn't fulfill that role on an ongoing basis. Think about how it went generally when someone who wasn't a Levite tried to play the priest. 
How did it go with Saul? Other than losing the entire kingdom, it wasn't that bad. Remember that? Saul the Benjamite tried to play priest when he wasn't supposed to. Does the name Uzziah ring a bell? 2 Chronicles 26 goes into the temple to offer sacrifice. That king wants to play the priest. He gets confronted by 80 legitimate priests. He doesn't stand down and what happens? Struck with leprosy for the rest of his life. And he lived out the rest of his days as a leper. See, the author is saying that, that up until this point, there was never anyone who was outside of Levi's family, Levi's line, who came in and actually served in a continual basis in the priesthood. It didn't happen. It was impossible. Verse 14, it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So he's saying it's obvious that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He's called David's son over and over. People testify when he's out walking around in Nazareth. That's the son of David. Matthew opens his gospel account chronicling the genealogy that Jesus is the son of David. And so the author is saying, you know, it's interesting, but when Moses talks about the priesthood in Exodus 28 and in Exodus 29 and in Numbers chapter 18, he gives lots of instructions about the priests, which are all very interesting, and yet no mention of Judah. Never, not once. Go read it. There's not a single verse, not a single mention of a provision. There's no backup plan. If the Levites are sick, then you could have a a priest of Judah stand in. If uh, the guy who's on call can't make it that day, just grab somebody from Judah and there'll be a fill-in. The author here says that it's obvious. The point was that unlike even royalty, you couldn't marry into the priestly line. You couldn't marry one of Aaron's daughters and then be a priest by extension of your marriage. You had to be born a son in the family of the tribe of Levi to serve as a priest. And so the author says, uh, this is obvious. It's evident. It's clear. It's simple. You look, at, you look at the genealogies. You look at how God structured the old covenant. It's very evident that this took place. And then, verse 15, this becomes even more evident. It becomes even more obvious when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. See, what he's saying is that this becomes even more obvious that, that Jesus' priesthood was not sanctioned according to the law, It was not based upon his bloodlines. It's not based upon bodily descent. In other words, it wasn't fleshly or or carnal. Uh, Not in the idea of of, uh, being sinful, but rather something that was non-spiritual. So so maybe you could think of it like this. What was it that qualified a man to serve as your priest in the Old Testament? Wasn't that he had to be above reproach? According to the scriptures, wasn't that he had to be apt to teach? Wasn't that he had to manage his own household well? He just had to be born into the right family. He had to be, have the right parents. He had to have the right descendants, the right line. It's like the eligibility for becoming president of the United States. 
According to the United States Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 5, no person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of the Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. Point is, it matters in that case who and where you're born, who you're born to and where you're born. So you start thinking about this with the, the priests then. They were regulated here legally according to the regulation of the law, according to this descendant. They had to be of bodily descent. You had to have paperwork. You had to have a DNA test. You had to have the proper last name. And so when he says here in the text, this has become even more evident. It's like he's saying... Um, Former, former boss of mine, when you would say something that everyone already knew, uh, he would gently say in front of everyone, Captain Obvious wants his cape back. Just to let you know that we all knew what you said before you said it. The author here is saying this is very much evident. It's, it's very obvious how the priestly line worked and that Jesus came outside of that. And you say, why is it that he's making such a significant point here? Why belabor the point? Right? Maybe even if we're honest, as you're sitting here right now, you're saying, this is a little bit boring. It's a little bit technical. I'm not really that concerned about Melchizedek. I'm not really concerned about the Old Testament priesthood. Some of this is going a little bit over my head. Why is the author making this point? Because he wants you to understand the source of this priesthood. He says right there that this came not by bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. See, you could have a priest that was a total spiritual loser. That actually happened in Scripture. We have a record of that many times. Because all that had to happen was you had to be born into the right family. And you couldn't have any physical blemishes. So you had, you had physically unblemished people from the right family line. But this priesthood here that Jesus came came on the basis of an indestructible life. The idea is that it came based upon his own nature of who he was. He didn't need any other origin. He didn't need a bloodline to demonstrate his credibility because he came as a priest in his own right. What's an indestructible life? Well, he's a priest forever. We looked at that last week. Seven times in Hebrews 5 through Hebrews 7 is brought up that this priest is immortal. What's the point? When he's saying to these Hebrews, you really want to go back to a mere mortal man as a priest? When you could have Christ? You want some guy whose qualifications are that he doesn't have physical defects and he had the right parents? See, for Jesus to have an indestructible life means that, that when he goes and he pleads on your behalf, he ever lives and pleads for me. He's immortal. He can't be killed. He's not going to die. He won't be replaced. He doesn't need to sacrifice again. The cleansing that he brings is permanent and it is complete and it could never be undone. See, this priesthood was founded on Jesus himself. It is unlike any other priesthood. And so it's not subject to all the weaknesses and all the frailties and all the problems that you would expect from normal human beings. You have a mentor, your mentor's going to let you down at some point. You have a pastor, your pastor's going to let you down at some point. 
You have a good friend, your friend is going to disappoint you at some point. Every human relationship is going to fail in some way at some point. Except for the Lord Jesus Christ who comes with this indestructible life. So now finally, the last characteristic of this priesthood of Jesus, and this is the very best point. He saved the best for last. This new priesthood gives unhindered access to God. This priesthood gives you unhindered access to God. This is a permanent access. This is an access that cannot be threatened. And this is an access that provides you everything that you need to get in. Look at how this unfolds. Verse 18. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. So back up in verse 12, we read about a change. And uh, that was a good word. It was the idea of replacement language. Uh, It's a little bit softer, right? We change jobs. uh, We change clothes. We change diapers. We take the old one, we get rid of it, we replace it with a new one. This idea here of of set aside is emphasizing the the formal nullification, uh, rendering something absolutely obsolete. Uh, This would be more like taking a contract and ripping it up and saying that it's no longer in existence. It's a formal doing away of something to replace with another. And so that former commandment, that's the former law, the Mosaic laws, is utterly set aside. Why? Because it's weak. It's ineffectual. It doesn't have power to, to ultimately bring about complete salvation. And it's useless, the scripture says. It's unprofitable. It can't get the job done. And so the idea here is, is it's time to be out with the old and in with the new. A new priesthood a new arrangement for atonement. On the one hand, the old is set aside, but on the other hand, the writer says, verse 19, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Take one, leave one. Take the old one away, bring a new one to put in its place. My friends, this this priesthood gives you a better hope. I want you to think about this for just a minute. We hear better hope, and and oftentimes we think for a moment qualitatively. Uh, In other words, we're more hopeful, or we're more sure, or we're more confident. That's not it at all. The Old Testament saints' hope was based upon the promise of God, which was just as unchangeable in the Old Covenant as it is in the New Covenant. So what is the, the better hope? The better hope is a hope for something that is better. It's the hope in in a better access. And what is that access? It's that all of you can come to God by yourself. You don't need anyone to bring you to God because Jesus already promises to do that. See, this is a very much better arrangement. The old covenant, you needed a priest to get near to God. And a priest had to consecrate themselves first. Exodus 19, the Lord said, let the priests who come near consecrate themselves, lest my anger break out against them. And so now through Jesus, you have better access, get this, than any high priest in the history of the entire Levitical priesthood. Is that not staggering? 
The whole nation of Israel, one tribe, the Levites, they were the ones that would be the priests. Of all the priests, one high priest at a time, that's the one that gets to go enter into the Holy of Holies. Now what the author of Hebrews is saying is, you actually have a better hope because you have better access than that priest did one time per year. You had to go every day. And you don't even have to wash your clothes and take a bath and sprinkle the blood and offer the sacrifice to get into that place. And by the way, you might die when you go in if you forgot something. No, 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 no. This access is a better access. My friends, I want you to think about this access for a minute and just meditate on it with me. You're saying that Jesus did not just save you so that you could experience forgiveness and have your sins not be punished. He saved you so that you could have a relationship with him. It was something beyond the forgiveness, that the forgiveness came in first so that it could reach the greater goal, which was the restoration of that relationship. God saved you so that he would be your God and you would be his possession. God saved you so that he would bring you into his family as a child through adoption and give you every spiritual blessing. He actually chose you. He chose you to be his own before the very foundation of the world. He snatched you out of the grips of the God of this present age, which is the dominion of sin and Satan. And he clothed you with his own righteousness, the one that he provides, one that you do not possess. He gave it to you freely so that now you could be his loved one and be brought near. My friends, in the gospel, justification and forgiveness, as good as they are, are not the end goal. They're the means by which we get God. You understand, that's what you get in the gospel. You get God himself. With no more enmity. No more tension. No more wrath. So I'd say, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is this your highest good? It ought to be. Is this your highest good? Not just that you receive benefits from God, but that you receive God himself? That the prison ministry of Jesus Christ came and got rid of all of the bloody animals and the year-by-year rituals and now gives you unhindered, unmediated access to God himself. Access without fear of punishment. You know, began to think about this just practically in my own life a bit this week. And I realized how often I live beneath this access. Right, several ways that we could do that. One is you just don't avail yourself of it. It's like you're walking past the throne room day after day. You have an open standing invitation there with a welcome mat laid out. And for whatever trinkets and entertainments would just exchange it for that which is better. The invitation here is to draw near. It's right there. Another way is to, to think about this as is the idea that my own guilt prevents me from coming. It's driving this, this week and thinking about this text and uh, was out as the sun was rising over the mountains. And the thought that struck me was, man, the uncaused cause, right? The uncreated creator who causes the sun to rise each day and brings about the dawn that creator actually cares about me. 
I'm not even the most important guy on my street. Right? I don't think I even live on the most important street in Albany. Albany is surely not the most important city in Oregon. Oregon's not the most important city in the U.S. I mean, you start to get down here pretty low, right, with what we're talking about in terms of personal significance. And yet to think that that creator has called me to draw near to him. And what's the immediate thought? Lord, I'm a wretch. Lord, I'm, I'm unclean. I'm guilty. I, I have no right to be anywhere near you. Two ways to handle that. One in the flesh to say, no, I'm pretty good. I can come. I'm not that bad. I'm better than others. It's not the gospel. The gospel says, as I, as I hear the shout that I'm unworthy to be in the presence of God, I say, yes, that's true, but I have a priest. And that priest came to the Father, and he made sacrifice on my behalf. And now, not only do I have access, but I'm welcomed into the presence of my Father. No more wrath, no more punishment, no more fear. My friends, I'd ask you in your Christian life, if, if this is your experience of freedom and joy, in your relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. That's why he came. He came to give you that relationship with God. I want to leave you with the words of songwriter. We haven't sung this song for a while here. Called, Now Why This Fear? But it captures well the, the question that comes to every heart after studying a magnificent truth like this. Songwriter asks, Now why this fear? And unbelief. Has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin now canceled at the cross? Jesus, all my trust is in your blood. Jesus, you've rescued us through your great love. Complete atonement you have made and by your death have fully paid the debt your people owed. No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled with your blood. Be still my soul and know this peace. The merits of your great high priest have bought your liberty. Rely then on this precious blood don't fear your banishment from God since Jesus sets you free. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, what wondrous love is this? What wondrous love this is to uh, maintain your justice, Lord. We don't worship a God who um, is unconcerned about sin. We don't worship a God who has uh, the ability to turn a blind eye to our transgressions. Uh, but we have a God who loves us with a type of love that, uh, Lord, we can't even plumb the depths of, frankly. Uh, we can't understand the height or the breadth or the depth of it. But Lord, we begin to get little tastes and glimpses of it on the pages of Scripture. You've um, reiterated it over and over and over. And so I pray that, Lord, you would conquer um, the unwarranted feelings of fear and guilt among your people. Lord, that we would recognize that uh, our cleansing comes not from greater obedience, but rather from the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, that the, the sacrifice of praise, the obedience that we live would simply be in response 
uh, to the work that you've done for us. Thank you for welcoming us into your presence, Lord. We love you. Amen.